uh, aside from the problem of the word atonement, there's a confusion. The, the, the gospel I grew up with was an atonement theory. That means we were mistaking the gospel for an atonement theory. The gospel is that Jesus came, died, and rose again to save us from Satan's sin and death and to renew us to relationship with God. But these atonement theories are just about how did that work? Do you need an atonement theory to preach the gospel? Well, you do if you think your atonement theory is the gospel. But if we go to the book of Acts and read every single evangelistic sermon to Jews or Gentiles by any apostle or by the proto-martyr Stephen, not one of them includes an atonement theory. And by the way, not one of them includes the threat of hell either. Oh, you're finally mine. Oh, I've been waiting this whole time. Oh. Hey there, everyone. Welcome back to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I am Seth, your host. Today's topic is going to be large, and I'll tell you why. I got to sit down with Brad Jersak, and we spoke a bit about the cross, its purpose, atonement theories, payment for sin, death. To surmise it, we talked about why Jesus had to do what he did, and I can't think of a better question than that. Brad Jersak is, is an author. He's an editor-in-chief of CWR Magazine. And he currently is a teacher based in Abbotsford, B.C., uh, where he serves as a monastery preacher at the All Saints of North America Monastery. And so with that out of the way, let's not belabor the point anymore. I hope you enjoy this. A very brief discussion about atonement. Brad, thank you so much for making the time this morning to come on to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I am very excited to talk about uh, the, the conversation at hand, specifically around a bit of your history, uh, your journey through faith. I, I think it mirrors a lot of what some people experience, and I think it is what some people also wish they could do but never have the guts to do, just work through the meaty things of of the the faith that we all, well, hopefully we all profess in. Uh, and then we'll we'll finish that up with some atonement, and then if there's any time left, we'll have other topics as well. If I said, who is Brad Jersak, and I'm meeting you in the bar, and I say, all right, give me you, what's your story? How did you get from where you were, so I guess where was that, to where you're at now? Well, being that I'm 53, this could take a while, but <laughs> um, I will do my best to give you the Reader's Digest version. Uh, I was born in a wonderful Christian family with parents who loved Jesus, introduced me to Jesus, taught me how to pray, taught me to love the scriptures. Uh, we were uh, Baptists in central Canada, fairly conservative Baptists, but I would say my parents were open to the Holy Spirit and um, committed to telling others about the good news of Christ. Uh, I became a Christian. That's what we called it in the Baptist church. I became a Christian when I was uh, maybe six, and then I convinced my pastor to baptize me. I immediately uh, dove into the scriptures, and, and somehow this, my whole life was revolved around Jesus. Uh, however, I would say by the, by the time I was eight, 
uh, we were also seeing a lot of revivalists come through town who were really into end time stuff and they got me into it. So the whole old dispensationalism and Armageddon stuff, second coming is next weekend. Um, and I believed it. I was, I was on board. Um, when you start introducing that stuff and especially evangelistic preaching focused on the fear of hell and an ultimatum, um, your faith shifts. And I started to move from love for Jesus to, to fear. And, uh, for the next 10 years, my faith was in, um, my faith was in fire insurance. Basically it was, mm -hmm. it was fear based. So I was, that was sort of a lot of my first 20 years. And then I went to college, uh, Bible college and seminary at an interdenominational conservative college. And there I met my wife, Eden. And after graduating, her Mennonite church on the west coast of Canada uh, called me to be an associate pastor for youth ministries, uh, young adults, and outreach. And I was with the Mennonites for 10 years. And what I noticed from from that era was that they preached a lot more from the Gospels than Baptists do. We were spending a lot of time as Baptists in, in Paul's theology describing what Jesus had done for us. The Mennonites, uh, you can see, really see it over the course of a decade. I, they just immersed us in the life and teachings of Jesus. Every youth meeting I ran, we talked about uh, the life and teachings of Jesus. Most of the sermons on Sunday morning, we would look at the call to take up our cross and follow the way of Jesus. That looked like something in this world, uh, namely the Sermon on the Mount, for example. Was that hard to do, <clears throat> being that your upbringing was not that, that you were... I'd, I'd call it the canon within the canon. We only talk about Paul, uh, yeah. at, at least in most the churches where I'm from around. Was that hard to do that, to lead a church in that way with your upbringing? No, it was wonderful uh, because we got even more Jesus-focused, and I wanted to be Jesus-focused, and the love was coming back for me. And so uh, it's something about the gospel itself. When you think about the gospel, not as an atonement theory or as four steps or five laws or three hoops or whatever, but as <laughs> Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Christ, that's the gospel. And so uh, when you're focused on that, it's it's like you just see how he takes care of people and talks to people and loves on people and heals people week after week after week. And and rather than than simply thinking about this, I'm I'm saved from hell by believing the right thing about what Jesus did on the cross. Now we're just seeing Jesus in action over and over, and you fall in love again. And I did, yeah. and including having had shifts towards a more uh, uh, the nonviolence, non-retaliation, radical forgiveness of Jesus as well eventually hooked me. After ten years there, we felt a call to church plant. So my wife and I and another couple we, we went to. Uh, we went to plant a church, and during my time as a Mennonite, I also really discovered the whole world of inner healing, and we discovered the um, the Holy Spirit in a fresh way. We had sort of a charismatic renewal in our in our Mennonite church, and so with those things as foundations, listening to God, the pursuit for inner healing, we were going to plant this church. We called it Fresh Wind Christian Fellowship, and I suppose uh, uh, not all of your Listeners would recognize uh, who the Vineyard Movement is, but we were a little bit like them. It would be very ca a casual service, charismatic, but uh, not Pentecostally in that sense. Uh, it's sort yeah. of, you know, the blue jeans thing. Yeah, I think. Well, I, think I think maybe some of my age group would, because 
predominantly still what we sing is vineyard and, and vineyard worship music, but but I don't think people know the church that that comes out of, that's, that that okay. springs forth from. But I, I know even just this past Sunday, if you look down at the CCLI stuff, it says vineyard worship, Rittenman or, or whatever, but it's it's all late 90s usually. So, but yeah. I think they're familiar with some of their songs, but probably not familiar at all with that movement. Well, the songs really help because that's what was informing our theology. And even though it's a charismatic movement, in a sense, the songs primarily focus on the Father's love, the Father's heart, the Father's invitation to the Father's house, all of that, especially Brian Dirksen's stuff, who he lives in town here where I live in Abbotsford, B.C. And that radically impacted us. That What that church ended up drawing then are those being called to the Father's house. So for the next 10 years, uh, I was... I was pastoring in this church where one third of the people were had disabilities and were in full-time care. Mm. Um, one third. And then on top of that, we had children who were disruptive for too disruptive for other churches, but we wanted them in. Mm-hmm. And we had then addicts start showing up and saying, wow, I won't be the lo- loudest person here and I'm not going to get judged here. So suddenly we had a lot of um, uh, alcoholics, drug addicts, sex addicts, you name it. Uh, who were in 12-step recovery, in recovery houses and so on. And we would do inner healing work with them. And then uh, and then the poor started coming. And at sometimes that was the working poor. At other times it was the homeless. And so we worked with those on the margins and just saw a, a consistent orientation of God's love towards them whenever we would minister and, and um, like zero condemnation, always uh, the good news invitation to the Father's love. Uh, I stepped down in 2008. My wife became the lead pastor there for the next five years while I did my PhD work in uh, political theology and a theology of the cross uh, at Bangor University in Wales. But it was distance learning, so I could do it from home. And then um, during that time, I I was being mentored by a fellow named Archbishop Lazar Pahalo in the Orthodox Church. And we really bought into the theology of the Eastern Church at that point. It's, you know, 350 million Christians, and the West knows very little bit about what they believe, and yet these are the stewards of the early church fathers' material who've never departed from it because it's embedded in their weekly liturgy. Yeah. A few years back, well, it's five years ago now, uh, I formally uh, was chrismated. That means they they didn't rebaptize me, but they anointed me with oil, and I affirmed the Nicene Creed and joined the East Orthodox Church. And so now I'm now I'm a a, a monastery preacher in a in a little monastery where probably sixty or seventy congregants show up on Sundays for the service. And I um, vocationally I've moved out of pastoring now, and so I write and I'm an editor for Christianity Without the Religion magazine, CWRM can find that online for free at ptm.org and i write books uh, my last one was a more christ-like god mm-hmm. oh and i did a children's version called jesus showed us and then i also teach and so i i just i'm just in the midst of exiting westminster theological center as a teacher in england and focusing now on another school it's called saint stephen's university in new brunswick on the east coast and i'm teaching there and i'm going to have some a role in as a as dean in there Master of Ministries program. What is political theology? Because those two words in my brain shouldn't belong together. Ah, very good. So political theology, um, we're exploring how how our faith impacts 
our politics or our political approach. And so, for example, uh, this would we we might study the history of how theological debate has informed political debate. And so this isn't to do with the separation of church and state or the combination of church and state. It's more like you almost have to erase the word political from your mind for a moment. What I mean is, how do we make our personal faith public? How do we live out our faith, not only privately, but in community and Mm -hmm. in our city? And how does working out our faith publicly impact a just society? That may not happen whatsoever through government processes. So we often think political means government. Yeah. No, political means public. Uh, you know, it's a, a public working out of, and it, it can have an effect on the government. But let's just say, for one, for example, uh, how do we deal with the poor in our city? Well, we should have a theological opinion about that, an opinion that goes to the, and I don't mean like systematic theology. I mean, we go to the Gospels, we look at Jesus and how he treated the poor how he treated the stranger, which in Greek and Hebrew means immigrant and refugees. Mm. Uh, we see how he treated the sick and what that means for health care and so on. And so we, we look to the Gospels for, now, uh, does this have political implications? Well, certainly, the last judgment in Matthew 25 is all about how our faith becomes public for the service of a greater good than ourselves. So that's what I mean by political theology. I'm not going to lie. I kind of just want to talk about that now, but I won't because I didn't prepare for that. But but maybe we can do that a different time. That uh, I'd love to. Yeah, sure. The uh, so and, and the reason I say that is for some reason I've I've noticed through everything that I've been reading recently, everything keeps coming back to Matthew twenty five. And like I talked with Richard Beck about it, I talked with Sean Palmer about it, and I didn't expect everybody to go there. But for some reason, two thousand eighteen is the year of Matthew twenty five. And then I think yeah. that through the lens of I grew up with the moral majority. I went to Liberty, which is extremely charged with, well, what it's charged with. So, uh, but I don't want to digress. But yeah, I look for, we, I, I definitely want to discuss that with you further at a different date. Uh, to, I'll be back. <laughs> to, to get, to, yeah, I, mm, that, that tickles all my, it, every, I don't know. I can't even voice it correctly. Um, so, Something that I have come to realize about myself, and I told some friends yesterday, I no longer can hold to a view of Scripture that endorses penal substitution, but I have many struggles with explaining why that is the case. And so I wanted to talk a bit about atonement theory with you, and I'd like to start with what are we trying to say when we say, you know, this is what atonement is? What are we defining? What are we as Christians trying to wrap our heads around? Yeah, that's a very important and good question, because the question itself introduces problems. So um, it introduces assumptions. For example, what is the question of atonement? So here's the wrong answer, but it's the one that's so often assumed. We thought— the question of atonement was, how does the cross save us? And sometimes we even think, how does the cross save us from hell or something like this? Mm -hmm. Um, So already that's too narrow because uh, a better question around the atonement is, how does Jesus save us? I say that because Jesus' saving work didn't all happen one on Friday afternoon of Good Friday. It begins 
in the heart of God with his incarnation into the world where um, God assumes human nature in order to heal human nature, and it begins at his conception. And prior to that, if you're thinking about the plans of God, but I mean, just the fact that Jesus saves us, um, um, that process begins from day one through what we call the hypostatic union. That means when God and humanity are united in this one person. And in fact, you could say the creator and all of creation are united in this one person because Jesus Christ is both creator and created. What happens when God and humanity and creation are united in this one person at birth? It begins this salvation process whereby all the life of the creator begins pouring into the life of humanity and into the life of creation in a healing, redeeming way. That then works out all through Jesus' life. So Jesus' whole life, and especially his ministry with um, when he launches it in Luke 4, and he describes the new covenant, he doesn't say the new covenant will happen when I die. He says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, cleansing to leper, um, uh, freedom to the captives, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's all new covenant, right? And then he says this, today this is fulfilled. In your hearing, day one of his ministry in terms of public preaching. Um, then we see that being worked out, salvation, by the way, the root word of this is the, the verb sozo, which means healing and saving. So it's sort of like making whole again, but also rescuing. And so you've got, that's all packaged in, 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 in salvation so that uh, someone who gets healed by Jesus is being saved. Someone who gets delivered of demons is being by s being saved. Someone who's forgiven of sin is being saved. By the way, all of that's happening before the cross. He's saving people before Good Friday, and then on um, on Good Friday, we uh, well the whole weekend, we see Jesus' death and his descent into Hades and victory over that, and then his resurrection. Uh, these two are all, they're all like the climax of, of this salvation event, whereby God reveals himself through Jesus, especially on the cross, that he is self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. He's, he's poured himself into the world as love, and that love saves us. What does it save us from? Penal substitution taught that Jesus Christ saves us from God, mm -hmm. <laughs> from no, Paul says God was in Christ, saving, reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us. And he saves us decisively from Satan, sin, and death. And so um, as far as I can see, that, that is the, uh, the gospel testimony of, of the saving work of Christ. So you could see how, how does, how does the cross save us from hell or something is just, or even how does the cross save us from the punishment or, or wrath of God? It's just too small of a question. I find when I talk to people about this and predominantly my, my stream that I am in and around is, is a Calvinist stream just by proxy of where I'm at and the friends that I have from Liberty. Uh, and so, and I'm fine with that. I know going in that I'm going to be called, 
heterodoxical or a heretic either. And I'm not really certain what the difference is between those two, but is there, why do we need as a church, you know, where there's penal substitution, there's Christus Victor, there's governmental, there's moral influence, there's ransom theory. Why do we even need, are we making this more difficult than it needs to be? Do we need all of these theories at all? Yeah, we're, it's, it's, uh, incredibly problematic in, in, in this sense. Um, first of all, there, let me just say a word about atonement. So in the Eastern Orthodox churches, they are very nervous about that English word to begin with because of what's happened to the English word. The roots of the English word really were what, uh, in one of the questions you had sent me was at one mm-hmm. Now you don't normally take a word and split it up like that to get its meaning. That's just a, a we call that a exegetical fallacy. That's, but in the case of atonement, that is how the word was formed, at one minute. So here's why the Orthodox are nervous of that word. At the outset, the word when the word was first coined in English, it meant reconciliation, to bring to get to reconcile. But the the English word has morphed over time, and it doesn't mean that anymore. The word atonement now means something closer to the word appeasement. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the atonement theories of the West tend to stop asking, how did God in Christ reconcile us to himself? And by the way, he didn't need to be reconciled to us. He never turned from us. But we needed to be called back home, like the younger son in the prodigal son story. He's reconciled to his father. So if that's the question, no problem. How does God reconcile the world to himself? By forgiving us of sin, by conquering death, and by opening wide paradise to us again. And um, But but the question changes if the word changes. So now, in penal substitutionary atonement, for, for example, um, the popular version, the unnuanced version, and maybe we'll say the classical version from Kelvin, is more like how does how does the torture and death of Jesus Christ appease the wrath of God so mm-hmm. that he can forgive you? And while some would say that's, you know, that, that that's the gospel, um, the Orthodox would say, no, that that's a heresy. That's because you're you're making God into this angry, wrathful judge who needs to be appeased by a child sacrifice. Yeah. Well, when I first met Archbishop Lazar, he said, oh, I see your problem. You worship Molech. He's the god of wrath who needed to be appeased by child sacrifice. Yahweh's not that way. Yahweh comes in the flesh to let us know we are forgiven, we are loved, and we are welcomed unconditionally. Um, that almost makes it a different religion. Huh. So, back to, if I could jump, <laughs> sorry to ramble, but but now, your so your question was, do we need all these different theories? I want to say that uh, aside from the problem of the word atonement, there's a confusion. The, the, the gospel I grew up with was an atonement theory. That means we were mistaking the gospel for an atonement theory. Mm-hmm. The gospel is that Jesus came, died, and rose again to save us from Satan's sin and death and to renew us to relationship with God. But these atonement theories are just about how did that work? Do you need an atonement theory to preach the gospel? Well, you do if you think your atonement theory is the gospel. But if we go to the book of Acts and read every single evangelistic sermon to Jews or Gentiles by any apostle or by the proto-martyr Stephen, 
not one of them includes an atonement theory. And by the way, not one of them includes the threat of hell either. Not once. So whatever the gospel is, it doesn't need that. Um, we also confuse atonement theories with biblical metaphors. So it's almost like you've got the gospel first. Second, you have biblical metaphors describing the gospel from the mouth of Jesus and Paul and James and others. And then after the fact, hundreds of years later, you add this third layer that we call atonement theories. So, okay, those can be interesting to talk about, but but they certainly shouldn't be confused with the biblical metaphors or with the gospel as such. Hmm. And um, by the way, also, you mentioned Christus Victor. So that's another problem because people in the West will think that Christus Victor is one of the atonement theories. It's described that way in, in Gustav Allen's book, um, Christus Victor, saying, well, what's the atonement theory of the early church? Um, I don't believe Christus Victor is an atonement theory. I think it's a description, a meta biblical metaphor of the gospel where Christ is victorious over death. That That's not a theory. That's like <laughs> gospel. When you say it that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you yeah. say it that way, right? Yeah. So... You can so I I go into depth in all of these in um in a more Christ-like God and I even tip my hat to a version a very subtle version of penal substitution where we say if you mean by substitute that Jesus did something for us that we could not do for ourselves well of course of course he did if you mean by penal that Christ suffered death which is the penalty for sin penal right well of course he did. Um, and you've got scholars in Germany like Tübingen talking this way. And okay, in the academy, it's very subtle. But that's not what it means in popular preaching, is it? It no. means yeah. God punished Jesus instead of you. That's what it means. And and so I would just absolutely resist that because God's not God doesn't need to do that. Yeah, and that sounds similar to um, a friend of mine sent me a and he didn't endorse it either, one way or another. I don't. I, I'm certain he'll listen, and I don't want him to feel attacked. Um, he sent me a YouTube clip of N.T. Wright basically saying that you can still hold penal substitution while holding Christus Victor or while holding other versions. That you can. It doesn't have to be an an, an and or. It can be an either. Yeah. Well, Wright's a Wright's a interesting fellow. His his last book on the cross is really important and worth reading. It's called The Day the Revolution Began. Mm -hmm. Here's the problem with Wright. When he talks penal substitution, he doesn't mean wrath appeasement at all. In fact, in that, so when he, he has his own version, he's created his own version of penal substitution, whereby he gets to keep using that phrase. Mm -hmm. But he, I don't think he should do that when he clearly says that um, that it that it is not about wrath appeasement. So in that book, and I'm quoting him, he says there are kind, there are versions of the gospel where where it's about the appeasement of the wrath of an angry God, and he says that is paganizing the gospel. In other words, the popu he right is calling the popular preached version of penal substitution pagan. Mm -hmm then I think he should let go of that phrase because you, for him to say, but I believe in penal substitution, then redefine it. That's like me saying, well, yeah, and I'm, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Right? And, and by I'm that, I mean this. Words, but yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think that... Be because you and, are a Latter-day Saint and, exactly. and you follow Christ. Yeah. Right. But yeah. I'm not a Mormon. 
and uh, and and Wright's not a five point Calvinist or a four point Calvinist or you know he um, so at least I felt like he was being disingenuous until this last book. Now he's come out and just clearly said it. If you mean that Christ had to appease the wrath of an angry God in order to forgive you, that that's that's paganizing the gospel. I'm like, well, finally you said so, but. Um, I'm sure some won't like that he did. I am something you never comprehend. No need to worry, no need to cry. I'm your Messiah, your reason why. question that naturally arises when we we think about Christ and the cross. So as a father, if I knew Mm -hmm. I could, if, if what I'm hearing you say is the cross is not an instrument that allows God to forgive or to love. It's, it's not, it's not the tool. It's not the means. It was, it was mere, I don't, I don't know what, I can't voice that well, but I think you hear what I'm trying to say. Was it even necessary that I would have to sacrifice my son if I was in God's position to, why would I do that? Does it does it take away something, especially in light of, you know, we're in the Easter season as we're recording this, does it take away something to know that he possibly didn't have to do that? I believe he had to do it, but not in order to forgive. And so then if it's not if it's not like God's God's anger poured out on Jesus as violence and death dealing, if that's not what releases God to forgive, then why does that need to happen at all? And so here, here's our answer to that. Um, the cross was absolutely necessary because in, uh, for two reasons, remember, it's not just Jesus, the man on the cross, it's God, God is on the cross. There's a, there's an old Latin expression that expresses um, how the the indivisible trinity. So remember that for a moment. We believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one in essence and undivided. That's in the liturgy that we sing every Sunday. I'll say it again. We believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one in essence and undivided. Any atonement theory that divides the trinity where God is and Jesus Christ becomes separate is a, is a formal heresy because now you've got th- either tritheism, three gods, or you've made Jesus Christ less than the Father, or he ceases to be God in some way, and that's just Arianism. Can, can you say that again for those in the back row? And if you're in yep. your car and you dozed out, please yep. come back around and, and listen right now. Okay, so we believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one in essence and undivided. That means it's God on the cross. So the Latin phrase I was going to tell you is all the operations or workings of God in this world are undivided. That's why it's Yahweh who says in Zechariah 12, you will look on me, the one you have pierced. Who is me? Yahweh. Where is God, the father on Good Friday? 
Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So to split away, to have, to have father and son, that the, the God had severed, which penal substitution requires, you, you, you fall into one of two errors. Either you split the Trinity, which is indivisible, so that's an error, or you make Jesus less than the Father. Like, for example, we might say Christ became sin and the Father can't look on sin. Oh, okay. So Christ is not fully God anymore? Wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, this is Christian orthodoxy, that Jesus Christ never ceased to be fully God at any moment. He never ceased in fellowship from his Father. In fact, in the Gospel of John, he says this, you will think I'm alone, but I'm not alone. My Father is with me. I mean, how much more clear does he have to be? Well, if it doesn't fit your system, you just ignore those verses. But what about, um, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, Mm -hmm. that's rooted in Psalm 22, verse 1. And you just keep reading the Psalm, verse 22, 23, 24, and he says this. And it's, it's from the same mouth saying that God has not despised the afflicted one. He has not turned his face from me. So, um... And one more verse in Isaiah 53, it prophesies this very error. It says, you will look on me and you will, you will think I was stricken by God, but it was your sins I endured or bore. So in other words, if you think God did this, you're wrong. But you will think that, but I'm telling you right now. And it's like already in Isaiah, he's mm-hmm. warning us against that very mistake. Yeah. So was it just obedience then? Is, is Jesus just, just incarnating just to die because I said I have to? Uh, no, it's more than that. So I would say it this way. And I said it before. I slipped it in before. And now we'll make it over to this moment. <laughs> Why did Christ go to the cross? Two reasons. One, to reveal God as self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. In other words, God himself, he gives himself over to our wrath. He submits to our darkness, to our rebellion. He submits himself to that we pour out on our, our wrath and violence and hatred on him. Then he, ra- what does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So he radically forgives the sinners and all, and because that's the, then he can, he forgives all sinners. Um, but also then co-suffering by that, I mean, he also, he doesn't just forgive sin. He suffers the injustices of all time and all history are drawn up into him on the cross and he swallows them in love and recycles them as forgiveness. So he's in solidarity with every victim from every war, from every rape, from every murder, from every embezzlement. All, um, so he, he takes that into himself and he, and his love purges it. So that's the revelation part that he's showing us who God is, what he's like, but also then it's a decisive victory over Satan, sin and death. So in John, he says, uh, concerning the cross, he says, now I'm going to be glorified and the prince of this world will be driven out now, like now from the, on the cross. And then in terms of sin, he's like, um, I, God could already forgive sin, but now in a decisive way, he forgives all sin because, because it has, um, uh, uh, it's been drawn like, like to this moment in time. And then, and then he, most importantly, perhaps Jesus needed to die to conquer death. So here's the logic of the early church fathers. When we sinned, 
the consequences of our sin is not that God kills us, but that sin kills us. Sin kills us. And now we have this, this, um, so it's sin, this, so it's sin, not God demanding. I don't want to say the word payment, but that's what's been ingrained in me. Um, no, sin, sin causes the death. So if the ransom is to anything, the ransom is to death itself. And so what has to happen is God needs to enter the realm of death to destroy death, but he can't because he's God. But wait, if he takes on a human nature, he can. So, so um, what happens is in the one person of Jesus Christ, through his human nature, he is able to die. And by being able to die, he can enter death. But wait, he's still God. So when God enters death, what happens? Death blows up. It's, it's destroyed. Think about the movie Men in Black. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but uh-huh. Tommy Lee Jones. Okay. So Tommy Lee Jones virtually taunts this giant cockroach into eating him whole. The cockroach eats him, but he doesn't die. And then Will Smith uh, taunts him in, and then finally he's like, you shouldn't have done that. And you hear the, the this uh, weapon powering up from inside the bug, and it blows him up from the inside, and there's Tommy Lee Jones fully alive. This is the early Christian vision of the death and resurrection of Christ, that that God needs to become man so that he can enter death, so that he can destroy death. And so in our liturgy, we always sing this, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tomb bestowing life. So the idea is that all humankind has come under the curse of sin or the wages of sin, which is death. So it's not enough for Christ to forgive sin. He has to deal with the problem of death, and he has done so. And so he just, he overcomes death, and now he holds the keys of death in Hades. And I love to ask this question. If Christ holds the keys of death in Hades, what do you think he'll do with them? Well, he unlocks Hades and leads a parade of captives out in his train, according to Ephesians. Uh, he preaches the good news to those who were in the, in, enslaved in the tomb. And in, in Peter says this, that those who were judged in the body are made alive in the spirit. And so the idea is that he's, he had to die to break death, and he, and he did so. So for us, <clears throat> death is the big problem. You did mention payment. Uh, do you want me to talk about payment sure. a little bit? Sure. So here's the problem. Um, we we have some verses where it where it's just clearly says Second Corinthians five that God wasn't counting our sins against us, and then even in the Old Testament, Psalm 103, He forgives all of our sins. He He heals. Uh, all of our diseases, and then he says uh, he is not treated us as our sins deserve. So it's God is not an into eye for eye justice. That's the whole point of forgiveness. <laughs> forgiveness is when you don't demand eye for eye justice, or pardon is even a legal term for that. Right? When you pardon someone, mm-hmm. you say you you don't need to be punished according to the measure of your offense. You're pardoned. All right, then where do we get the idea of payment? It's from two metaphors, ransom and redemption. And those are biblical metaphors, but we think of them in modern terms. Ransom is when you pay a hostage taker to set someone free. Redemption was when, is when you pay for an item or for a slave, for the slave owner or the pawnbroker 
to release something into freedom, right? So here's a problem already. Is God the hostage taker? Did Jesus pay God? You know? Yeah. Is is God the one who enslaved us? No, God's so but then wait a minute, who's being paid? And this was a question in the early church. And then what we realized is this. Ransom and redemption are metaphors rooted in the Exodus in the Old Testament, where it says that God redeemed Israel out of Egypt, or he ransomed Israel out of Pharaoh's hands. So the metaphor is freedom from slavery, right? Mm -hmm. But wait, in the Exodus, who did they pay? Nobody. In fact, the people of God plunder Pharaoh. They not only rescue their slaves without payment, they actually take a whole bunch of gold and, and yeah. people even with them, right? And they make, make a country out of it. Right. So this is the limitations of redemption and ransom language is that it is about freedom, but it's not about payment. And you see this very uh, in a poignant way when, in Jesus' parable when he says that, that he's going to bind the strong man, enter his house, and plunder his goods. So it's not a payment. It's, an, it's a home invasion. And the home of, of Satan is sort of this, I, metaphorically speaking, yeah. is, is, is death in Hades. And Christ is going to bind the strong man, Satan, enter his house, death, and plunder his goods, the dead. And yeah. he does. So and, that's redemption. And the people of that day would have got that connection, correct? Yeah, the, oh, the, the, for the sure. audience that he was speaking to would have known what he was referencing. Absolutely. If, yeah. if you I see, learned... that's a biblical metaphor, but it's not really an atonement theory, right? It's, yeah. It is the gospel, but in metaphor. If I've learned anything from doing this podcast, it is that Western Christianity has insulated itself to such a fact that, or to such a point that we no longer know the history of the faith, and because of that, the culture and everything, and so it, it makes it hard to grasp those things unless unless you actively seek it out, which is which is sad. Uh, yeah. We've—it's a disservice. It's uh, well, we we don't mean to, but here's what we did in the Protestant Reformation: we reject the whole of Christian history and say we're going to go back to the Bible ourselves, and we're just going to figure it out by ourselves. But by the way, we're going to do it with a legal lens, a courtroom metaphor, and every verse will be read through that legalistic metaphor. And if it doesn't fit that that, that sort of God is a punishing judge who must who and, and the law demands punishment and sin is law breaking. You know, if it doesn't fit that model, then we can't even see the verses. You yeah. know, like they're just read they over it. Count. Yeah, just just yep. skip right. It's the nutrition facts on the label. We just we're not worried about those. I'm worried about how it tastes. So yep. uh well I want to end with this then. So you you had said at the beginning, after I'd said I'm not quite certain what I believe with with atonement theories you would hope to indoctrinate me. And so what theory should I hold to? What What do you think personally best fits? What theory would you point people to learn more about as they listen to this? And I, I have many more questions, so I can't think that no one else also doesn't have more questions. Yeah, I, I almost would, you know, I would say be aware of atonement theories, be aware of them, but you don't have to hold to any of them. But what you do need to, to come back to is what is the gospel and what does the Bible say about the gospel? So as a result, what you, what perhaps what you thought of as a atonement theory, Christus Victor, I, I would say that that's a good that's a good biblical metaphor for um, for the, what the gospel accomplished. It's Christ's victory over Satan, sin, and death. Mm -hmm. But another one that you get in Scripture that you could use as a metaphor, and it becomes sort of the early church fathers' one of their favorites is 
is is the picture of the great physician that sin is not just law-breaking behavior that needs to be punished. Sin is a fatal disease, a wound deep in my soul that needs a great physician, and you will never punish that out of anybody. He didn't just come to save us from the consequences of sin. He came to save us from the disease itself. Mm. And so um, in that case, you go, okay, instead of looking at it as a courtroom with a judge and a, a need for punishment, you see it as a hospital, and you get this in the um, Good Samaritan story, that we're, we're a hospital where the great physician has come to heal us through uh, 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 of this fatal disease. How does he do that? By uniting with us. Um, when he unites with me, his healing love pours into me in that love union, and it and it cleanses me of sin. It doesn't punish me of sin. It cleanses me in the same way that if I was a garment with a stain. He cleanses the stain out of the garment but, um, without destroying or hurting or tearing up the garment or shouting at the garment or lashing the garment, you know. Um, but so, so it's, it is – if that's a theory, the theory is this, that his union with humanity heals humanity so that all early bishops would say Christ became human so that you could become divine, not by nature, mm. but by grace. Yeah, yeah, mm. that's that's beautiful, Brad. Where would you where would you direct people to to engage with you? Obviously, you've got your writings, you've got the magazine, which I will say I enjoy that magazine. I I frequent it about once a month. Um, I, I enjoy the magazine because I I find it's it's honest, and and I don't mean that in a way. It seems to not have as much of an of an agenda as you will get from. A camp or B camp or C camp. And so I, I appreciate that. But where would you direct people to to either engage in the work that you're doing or, or just overall, where would you send people to? Um, you know, I have a website called bradjersak.com. Um, of course, the, the, uh, the ptm.org website is where you'd find my, I have a blog there, but also a um, this magazine. I'm on Facebook as Brad Jersak. I'm on Twitter as Brad Jersak. Um, one thing I recommend, it's a good, it's a good foundation perhaps to, to Eastern thought and to my thought is, uh, if they Google, uh, Jersak chairs and Denver. So we have on, if you do that, you'll see that there's a 30 minute video of me describing what, uh, we call the gospel in chairs. And basically what I do is in 30 minutes, I, I, Describe the difference between how we tell the gospel in terms of that, that the penal substitution model, and then how the glitches in that that I felt needed upgrading and that I found uh, in um, in the East Eastern early Church Fathers, um, and so and then so I retell the gospel as God is in relentless pursuit of us; He never turns from us; He's always after us, and I do that just using the Bible. It's online in various forms, but if you do Denver, that's the one that's best produced. It's got multiple cameras, better focus yeah. and sound and all of that. Fantastic. I had not seen that. Yeah, I'll, I'll search that out today. Well, Brad, thank you again uh, for your time this morning. I appreciate it very much, and, and I hope you have a great day. My pleasure. It was good to be with you, and we'll see you again. Thank you all for listening. I want to ask you to... If you didn't do it at the beginning, do it now. Go to iTunes, rank the show. 
That is the best way that you can help the conversations that are happening here bubble up on the internet so that more people can interact with them. On top of that, share the show. Share it with your family, your friends, Facebook, social media. Whatever avenue you choose is a great avenue. I would also ask if you feel so led to become a patron at patreon.com slash can I say this at church. You'll also find a link to that on the website, can I say this at church.com. I am very grateful for those of you that have taken the time and your, your money to do so. I'll talk to you next week. Music from today's episode was used with permission from artist Noah Guthrie from his most recent album entitled The Valley. You can connect with Noah on all of the social medias as well as follow him on Spotify. You can listen on Apple Music. As with all of our artists, you will hear the selections from today's episode in our Spotify playlist, Can I Say This at Church? And the love you never Oh, you built the fire And now you watch it burn All of my desire And the love you